So this morning we are continuing our summer series called The Gospel According to Pixar. And it's our goal here at Rooftop to help you be followers of Jesus in the world. We want you to be in the world but not of the world. And one of the things that the world likes to do is make and watch movies. And some of these have some really great biblical ideas and concepts that we think that we should talk about together as a church family. The Apostle Paul tells us if there's anything right, true, noble, pure, lovely, admirable, or excellent, that we should focus upon these things. So that's what we want to do during the series is we want to focus upon these things. So films by Pixar Animation Studios, they're very entertaining, but they're also filled with lots of practical wisdom um, and they reflect Christian values and virtues in many areas. Um, And so I'm currently getting my Master's of Arts in Theological Studies at Covenant Seminary here in St. Louis. And I took a class that was called Communicating Jesus with Apologetic Sensitivity. That was the name of the class. And so uh, essentially the class teaches that that the the task of a well-rounded Christian involves relevant and clever cultural engagement with contemporary trends that can be used as, as an outpost or touch points for communicating the gospel. What does that mean? Well, well, Pixar films offer a multitude of opportunities for us to talk with those people in our life who may not want to talk philosophy and theology, but they like to talk about popular films. So I encourage you as you're watching these movies and other movies that you, you find these ideas and concepts that you can use to draw out and use them as helpful tools to dialogue with your friends and your family. So the movie we're diving into this morning is called Up. And so one reviewer said, a swashbuckling, continent-hopping adventure and an understated, nuanced psychodrama, right? I just sound so smart just even saying that. I don't know what it means, but I sound really smart. It's an outlandish, wildly creative fantasy and an almost devastatingly poignant piece of realism. The critic goes on, it's laugh out loud funny and try to hide your sobs moving, So the film won two Academy Awards. It also won Golden Globes. It won Kids' Choice Awards. It currently holds a 98% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is like a movie review site. So why did it receive such accolades? Why do people love this movie so much? Well, it's because it's, it's a beautiful, fantastic, sad, encouraging movie about life, death, and one man's journey through grief. On the surface, though, the movie seems to be uh, an adventure story depicting the tale of of Carl Fredrickson, a cantankerous old man, and and Russell, a chubby eight-year-old junior wilderness explorer who keeps badgering the old man so he can get his assisting the elderly badge, right? If you guys have seen the movie. So upon being evicted from his home, Carl decides to head to Paradise Falls in South America. But unbeknownst to Carl, Russell was on the front porch when the house uh, departs, when the house takes off. So the two, they are stuck together and they soar together to Paradise Falls and Mr. Fredrickson's memory-filled home by thousands of balloons. And, and through their journey together as Carl tries to fulfill his promise to his late wife Ellie to get to Paradise Falls, the two lead characters and encounter uh, talking dogs and dangerous terrain, um, as well as the embittered explorer, uh, uh, I think his name, yeah, Charles Muntz, who chases after them thinking they're there to steal his life, life's work, which is a bird that Russell has befriended and named Kevin. (laughs) 
It's just hilarious. Uh, but as fun as these things are, they don't make up really what the heart of the movie is really about. What the movie Up is really about is love and a journey through grief. So in the setup of the meeting of the two main protagonists, Carl and Russell, uh, we actually see through this video montage how Carl and his late wife Ellie meet. In just a few minutes through one of the best animated scenes, in my opinion, ever, we see their dance of life. We get a look into their hopes and dreams, the love that they have for each other, the plans that they're making for the rest of their lives together. We also see their disappointments and their letdowns. Particularly, we see how their dream trip to Paradise Falls constantly has to take a back seat to setbacks that we've all, we all can relate to in life. Flat tires, home repairs, uh, miscarriages, and health bills. Ultimately, we see by the end of the montage, though, sadly, Carl's wife, his soulmate, the love of his life, she dies. And with his soulmate gone, Carl is left a broken man, alone in a house full of memories, unkept promises, and dreams that would be left unfulfilled. The heart of this movie is grief, which is not really the plot you would expect from an animated children's movie. But we all love this movie so much because we can all relate to it to some extent. It touches all of us personally. Because we all know to varying degrees, grief and loss and pain and heartbreak and unkept promises. We have felt the pain of, 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 of perhaps literally and metaphorically sitting in the empty house, alone, broken, wondering how on earth you are going to make it another day. And Up beautifully captures the struggle and has provided for us a lot to talk about this morning. So I want to talk about grief. Specifically, what is grief? And then what happens inside of us when we grieve? This is how we're going to start our conversation this morning. What is grief? What happens inside of us when we grieve? Well, grief is the outward physical, emotional, and psychological expression of loss. That's experienced when someone or something we love has been taken away from us, right? That this leads to periods of sadness and then rumination upon the event, which then can lead to a lot of other physical and emotional issues and struggles. I found this quote from a doctor. This is what she says. She says, grief can deplete you to such an extent that the slightest tasks become monumental. And what previously was easily achievable now may seem insurmountable. Many of you, I'm sure you know this feeling right here that she is describing. Grief is much more than just sadness. Grief can manifest itself in a number of ways, uh, in immense emotional and physical suffering, which can then lead to anger, to guilt, to denial, and yes, sadness and despair. Initially, people who experience grief may, may uh, feel confused as well. They experience confusion, shock, disbelief at what's happened. And then after the shock has passed, many of you know the lingering emotions then can contribute to anxiety, extreme fatigue, crying fits, dreams, and nightmares. Depending on the circumstance, it can even cause anger and rage within us. We may think, how could this happen to me? 
Or, or, or God, if you're a good God, if you're really good, how could you allow something like this to happen? Or, or, or why do bad things happen to good people? And we can begin to get angry because sometimes it's easier to get mad than sad because when we're sad, sadness and grief and depression, those are actually states of, of vulnerability and powerlessness. So Edward Balby, he's a British psychologist, psychiatrist, and psychotherapist, and he made his name uh, during World War II studying infants of parents who had died during World War II. And, And these infants, he concluded, failed to thrive, and they later died despite receiving intensive medical care. So based on his work with the infants, Balby recognized the importance that we have with attachments with other people. And he believed that the grieving process is our natural response to broken attachment bonds. So part of the reason he says that our experience of grief is so painful is because we actually must learn how to, you've heard it said before, he says, let go of our attachments following a significant loss. So attachments are bonds that we form with significant people in our lives. Many of you know they continue even in the absence of that person. And in our protest of separation from our bond that we have with our loved one, or when we struggle to hold on to them even after they've gone, we then may go on to feel anxious, stressed, angry, Experience depression, denial, and despair and disbelief. So he concludes that holding on to pain hinders us from our ability to move on. I want to say that one more time. Holding on to our pain hinders us from our ability to move on. Now you may be thinking, Skylar, you're like 16. What do you know about grief and loss? You guys are laughing because it's what you were thinking. I know it. I knew it. Caught you. God, what do you know about grief and pain? What do you know about the experiences that I've had? What do you know about the trauma and the loss that I've experienced? Don't get up there and tell me that I need to let go. Perhaps that's what you're feeling right now, but I, I want to assure you, you are correct. I have no authority on this position, but this morning I'm not speaking on my authority, but I want to speak on the authority of God's word. And true, I am young. And true, some of you in here, you have shared your stories with me. And thank you so much. You've shared your stories with me. And you've shared the stories of loss and pain and and, and, and hurt. And some of these things, you're right. I have never experienced them and, and, and probably never will to the extent that you have. Some of my students in my youth group have shared some of their stories with me. And they've experienced, literally in 16 years, some unimaginable pain and loss and hurt. And I've learned through personal experience, through, through your stories and your journeys that you're willing to share with me, and also through God's word, that it is impossible to go through life and not endure grief, to not have uh, painful moments. If you haven't yet, you will. How encouraging, right? If you haven't experienced grief or pain, you will. Notice what Jesus says in John 16, 33. He says, in this life, you will face troubles. Not if, maybe, possibly, if you do this. No, in this life you will face troubles. But he also says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Growing up, I was, I was a very sick kid. I almost died a number of times because of asthma, so I was well acquainted with pain and suffering at a young age. 
My parents split up when my mom was pregnant with me, which led to lots of of pain and, and struggles in my own personal life and relationships. I've experienced ruined relationships, friendships, romantic relationships. Most of them were broken because of my brokenness and my sin. I've experienced heartbreak. I've had my dreams crushed multiple times. I lost my uh, football scholarship due to injuries and then I planted a church that failed. I know what it's like to be sitting like Carl in a room empty and broken wondering how on earth am I going to make it another day. I encountered something a few years ago that I went through. I was unable to get out of bed for, for, for three days. I didn't leave my house for three weeks and I, and I literally wanted to kill myself. This was only four years ago. Grief can hit anyone at any time without warning. Grief and pain and suffering and troubles are realities of life that you cannot control, but you can control how you respond. You can't control the pain and the grief and the hurt, but you can control how you respond to those things. Now, I don't want to be insensitive. Please hear me. As I'm preparing this message, I had some of you in mind who I know have experienced great loss. And I don't want to be insensitive to the pain and the hurt that you have. But many of us, if we are not careful, we can and we will hold on to our grief and we're going to carry it like Carl does. So hear me out. I've got a theory here. The house represents his grief. And then the movie is his journey working through his pain and his loss. Hear me out. The house that's where him and Ellie met, where they fell in love, where they had their whole adult lives together, planning their lives together and their futures together. They experienced joy. They experienced heartbreak. They experienced loss together. It's where they grew closer to each other. It's where he made the promise that he would take her to Paradise Falls. And after she dies, the house is all that he has left of her. And he can't let it go. That's why the whole neighborhood gets sold and there's businesses and skyscrapers, but he's unwilling to sell his house. He's unwilling to let his house go. He refuses to let it go. He can't let the house go because it's all that he has left of his his wife that has passed and it's all that he has left of the life that they lived together. So when he's forced to leave, he goes to great lengths in order to not have to let go of the attachment bonds that he and Ellie have formed. He goes to such great lengths that he attaches thousands of balloons to his house and he flies his house to South America. Just want to pause there for a second. That's insane, all right? That's crazy. I mean, we watch this movie we're like, oh, how adorable. No, that's something a crazy person does when they're completely driven and controlled by the grief that's in their life. He attaches thousands of balloons and he flies us out to another country. Grief can make all of it. We're not immune to that. Grief can make us do crazy things that we would actually never do otherwise. He literally, and at one point he's thrown off the house and in order to prevent the house from flying away, what does he do? He can't let the house go. He attaches his grief to himself. He ties the house to himself like a backpack. And he begins to carry his grief. He begins to to carry his grief around like a backpack. He's unable to let go, so he hitches himself to his grief. He hitches himself to his pain. And as I was thinking about this message, I thought, well, what about us? What about you? How do you handle your grief? How do you handle your pain? 
How are you handling that this morning? Are you like Carl and, and perhaps many other people in here? Have you strapped yourself to it, to your grief? Does your grief feel like this giant house or this giant weight that's over the top of you, looming over you? dictating where you go in life? Is it heavy? Is it burdensome? Are you unable or perhaps unwilling to unhook yourself from your grief? Are you depressed? Are you anxious? Are you stressed? Are you angry? Maybe, and maybe you don't realize it, but perhaps you have strapped yourself to your grief and it is weighing you down. It's leading to more pain, and I don't don't have to tell you this, you already know. It's leading to more pain, more hurt, more heartbreak, It's going to prevent you from making and maintaining relationships. It is going to steal your joy. It is going to weigh you down. It is going to make you do irrational things that you would not do otherwise, like attach thousands of balloons to your house and fly to South America. Or like Carl, he literally assaults someone who is just trying to help him. Grief can make us act in ways that we wouldn't normally act. So don't hear, though, what I'm not saying I don't want to demonize you for experiencing grief. And I don't want you to think you're not a strong Christian or you're not a strong believer because you're having a very hard time unhitching yourself from your pain. Grief is absolutely normal. It's a normal emotion and there's a healthy way to experience grief. The Bible even says there is a time to weep, there is a time to mourn, but there also, the Bible says in the same verse, is a time to dance and a time to laugh. And perhaps right now your life is a lot of mourning, and it is a lot of weeping, and it isn't a lot of laughing and dancing, right? And I think maybe that's because we've attached our grief to us. Grief is normal, but it becomes dangerous when we tie ourselves to it, and we let it dictate the way that we live our lives. It becomes dangerous when we carry the pain, and we are unable or unwilling to let it go. Many of us, we try to carry way more than we were ever intended to carry. We try in our pride to carry things that we actually have no ability to carry and handle on our own. My mom, whenever I was younger, my mom would go and buy groceries and then it's my job as the child. Any kids in here, you know what I'm talking about. Your job as the kid is to go out and get the groceries, right? So mom goes and buys the groceries. My job is to go out to the car and get all the groceries and then bring all the groceries inside. And so, of course, also you kids know, I can't take more than one trip. Obviously, I got to get it all in one trip. Obviously. That's how it goes. I can't ask for help either. I can't ask my sister. To, I got to carry all the bags. It doesn't matter if there's 100 bags or five bags. I've got to carry all the bags in, in, in one trip. You know, so I'm a big, strong man, obviously. So I go out there and uh, you're not supposed to laugh. Don't laugh. I was, wasn't a joke. So I'm a big, strong man. You know, I'm like eight. And I go out there and I put all the bags. Again, didn't ask for help. Definitely couldn't do this. I'm not strong enough to do this, but I tried. So I attached, like, you know, you you do the little bag trick where you, like, slide it up. Some of y'all are like, yes. So you slide it up, and then I do this arm, and then, you know, where you just tangle it up in your fingers, and then your fingers, like, the circulation's all cut off and all your fingers, and you got it under your arms, and then I'm doing that, and I, like, got it in my teeth, too, and I'm, like, doing, like, this you know, walking. And, uh, And then what happens is this particular time, I drop something. I drop one of the bags, so then I do the little 
you know, a little thing where you, and then I drop another thing, and then next thing I know, I lose my balance and I fall. I drop one bag, I smash the eggs, I drop a jar of pickles, and the jar smashes everywhere, and it's glass, so there's broken glass and pickle juice, and then I fall, and then I pop the bag of potato chips, and I squish the bread, and I'm like laying there like tangled and like gagging on like bags and broken glass and pickles and pickle juice and egg yolk, and I'm laying there in this mess. And then my mom comes out there, and I'm, I'm sure, of course, she's angry at me. But what my mom does is she actually, she, she untangles me from the baggage. She untangles me from the mess that I caused, and she helps me up. And is like, why didn't you just ask for some help? And I think, can I tell you this morning, church, when we don't handle our grief appropriately, this is what we do. We try to carry way more than we were ever intended or expected to carry. We try to carry way more than we actually are capable of carrying ourselves. And if you try this, if you don't ask for help, if you're unwilling to ask for help, you're going to be like me in a mess of baggage and egg yolk, laying there in a mess needing someone to help untangle you from the mess that your grief caused. Maybe that's you this morning. Perhaps you're sitting in here right now and you seem to be sitting in that mess. And you know all too well what it is that I'm talking about. But I want to tell you this morning, I want to tell you and I want you to know this, not just here in your head, but I want you to know this in your heart that Jesus sees you. And Jesus wants to come up to you and he wants to clean you up and he wants to untangle you from the baggage that you have strapped to yourself, but he also wants to help you carry it. Well, how do I know that? Well, luckily the disciple Peter, he wrote a letter. I actually have a copy of it. Um, Perhaps you do too. And I've got a verse that we're going to put up on the screen. It's 1 Peter 5, 7, and it says this. Give all your worries to him because he cares. Some translations say, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares. Did you know that? And I I mean, did you really know that? Again, not just here in your head, but did you know that in your being that Jesus cares? One of the things that makes grief so dangerous is that when we're in it, we feel like we're the only ones. We feel like nobody sees us. We feel like nobody can understand and we think nobody cares. But it's important to know that Jesus cares cares. And then once Carl was finally able to let go of his house and watch it float away, that is when he begins to experience peace and acceptance. So maybe this morning you need to know that you can let go of your house. You can cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares. And you need to know that this is not the end of the journey for you. That grief does not get to write the final pages of your story. So how do you do this? How do you uh, 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 cast your cares? Some of you are like, yes, Skylar. Tell me. Tell me how to cast, cast my cares upon the Lord. And I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to give you three points. To, here's three steps to casting your cares, right? I'm not, they don't all start with the same letter. They don't rhyme. They don't spell out a word. 
But I want to tell you from Scripture, biblically, I was able to pull two points as well as from my own personal experience. So these are things that have helped me and I hope that they can help you as well. So when I didn't want to get out of bed and I didn't want to live anymore, here are two points that helped me and I hope they help you. Number one, pray. We're not reinventing the wheel here at Rooftop, all right? Pray. I've got this verse that says this in Philippians chapter 4. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I've got a translation here that says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ. No, you're right. This verse doesn't say anything about God is going to take your pain and your hurt away and that your grief will disappear. But Paul tells us something else. He says that we can have peace in the midst of pain. When you're experiencing trauma and loss and hurt and unimaginable grief and you can't sleep at night and all you can think about is this traumatic event or this loss, what do you want more than anything? You want peace. And we try to find peace in a lot of other areas of life which ultimately lead to more hurt and more pain. But Jesus wants us to turn to him. He is the Prince of Peace. Paul tells us that we can actually turn to God. We can cast our cares by telling God what it is that we need. We can cast our cares by telling God, by talking to God, and by asking for help. And he also says, that, uh, that, that what we can do is we can approach God with thanksgiving. That we can thank God for the things that he's already done in our lives. When we're experiencing pain, sometimes it's the only thing that we can focus on is the pain that we're experiencing right now. But what we can actually do is we can thank God for what he's already done for us. Because if God never did another thing for you, I can tell you he's already done more than we deserve by the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you're experiencing loss and hurt, you can thank God for what he's already done for you. He's given you salvation you didn't deserve, grace you didn't deserve, love you didn't deserve, mercy you didn't deserve. You have breath in your lungs because of the grace of God. And we can thank him for the air in our lungs, for the strength in our bones. We can thank him for the friends that we have in our corner. We can thank him for an amazing church family that's going to rally behind you in, in, in painful times. Whatever those things may be, focusing on and thanking God for the blessings in your life can give you perspective and they can give you peace in the midst of pain. Talking to God, praying can give you peace and perspective in the midst of pain. And knowing that God is, is listening and that God sees you, knows you, loves you, and cares about you can provide us with the peace that we need. Number two is hope. As followers of Jesus, we have something that nobody, no thing can take away from us. No boss, no loss, no bad doctor's report can ever take away the hope that we have in Jesus. Hebrews 6.19 says, For we have as an anchor of the soul, firm and secure. 
The hope that we have as followers of Jesus is an anchor that is steady, that is sure, that is unmoving. The prophet Isaiah tells his people who have been exiled, they have been stripped of everything they know, they've experienced horrible pain and loss, and they have been exiled to a foreign land. And he tells them, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Those who hope in the Lord will have renewed strength in their lives. We can have hope that pain will subside. We can have hope that death does not get the final word. And we can have hope that grief does not have the right to write your story. And that's good news for somebody in here this morning. That there is another chapter of your story that is yet to be written. One of the best scenes of the movie, movie, Carl discovers that Ellie wrote him a note in their adventure book. And it says this, thanks for the adventure, now go have a new one. Grief doesn't get to write the final pages of your adventure book. God wants to fill the pages of of, of your book. God wants to fill the empty pages of your life. If you can have hope that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. So let's look at this in scripture. Some of you are like, all right, is this guy ever going to read the Bible? Yes. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to start reading at verse 15 and end at verse 24. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in, and he lay on the ground all night. He's devastated. His child is sick. His baby boy is sick. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. It says he would not get up, nor did he eat food. On the seventh day, the child died. His baby boy, David's son, dies. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet still alive, we spoke to him and he didn't listen. How then can we say to him that his child is dead? How are we going to tell this guy that his son just died? And it says, David hears the whispers and he knows. He says, "Uh, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David, look at what David does. His son has just passed. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He then went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you you arose and you ate food. This is what David says. While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now, my child is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Look at what he says here. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went in and he lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. So what happened here? King David's son, his wife has just bore a son who is, who is sick and near death. And some of you know that pain. Some of you know that loss. Some of you know that hurt, that pain of losing someone that you dearly love even after you spent time praying and fasting that the Lord would have grace, be gracious upon you and save your child or saved your loved one. For seven days, David pleaded 
with God. He grieved. He fasted. He lay on the ground. He wouldn't eat. And then his child dies. And after his child died, though, he didn't... Look, notice what he did, what he did here. I don't want to be insensitive here. And I don't want to, to diminish your pain. But the Bible has provided us an example of someone who is able to, to appropriately handle the grief that was going on in their heart. He didn't let it drive him mad. He didn't let it crush him. He did not let it dictate the rest of his life. He did not strap himself to his grief, but it says that he got up, he washed his face, and he went into the church and he worshiped God. And then he went home and, it's, and, his, and his attendants were like, How, what, what's going on? Why are you acting this way? And his response is essentially, I have more life to live. I can't bring him back, but I will see him again one day. And that is all of our hope. That maybe we can't bring our loved ones back, but we know one day we will see them again in heaven. Then the Bible says he goes, he makes love to his wife, and she has another son. And his son's name is Solomon, who goes on to be King Solomon, who's one of the wisest men, called the wisest man to ever live, and who went and built a great and mighty temple for the Lord, where his people would worship for, for hundreds of years. And that would not have happened if David had let grief write his story. He could have let grief control him and he would have had every right to. He just lost his baby boy. But he knew something that we need to know this morning. That weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. There is more life to live for you. God has more for you. God has more blessings. And God is not done writing the story of your life. And grief does not get to write the final pages. The adventure that God has for you is not over. Did you know, in Genesis, after Abraham's wife died, uh, Sarah, she dies. He's an old, older man. Is his life over? No, he goes on to live another four to five decades. He remarries and has more children. Did you know that? Abraham remarried. He got remarried way late in life. He lived to be well over 100 years old. He lived more life. He understood, if there's air in my lungs, my life is not over. If there is air in your lungs this morning, your life is not over. Grief does not get to write the end of your story. The death of the loved one is not the end of the story for you. God has more for you. Divorce is not the end of the story for you. God has more for you. That bad doctor's report that you got where things look bleak, that is not the end of the story for you. Broken relationships, that is not the end of the story for you. The mistakes that you made that you are now having to deal with the consequences, well, I promise you that is not the end of the story for you. And God can work all things for good. That what the enemy meant to take you out and what the enemy meant for evil, God is so good. Come on, somebody. God is so good that he can turn these things for good. We've got to understand in our hearts that there is more life to live, that your life is not over. There is new life beyond the pain. Don't let it weigh you down because there is new life beyond grief. So turn with me, let's go to to Matthew chapter 26 as we wrap up and conclude this message. Jesus, 
has lived with his disciples for three years now. They have grown close together. They've made memories together. They've become best friends together. This is the man that they admire so much. They've laughed together. They've experienced hardships together. They have grown close. This is their rabbi whom they love. And he is about to go to the cross. He is about to be arrested. He's about to be beaten almost to death, tortured publicly, and then executed publicly. His disciples are about to enter into a season of grieving and great loss. This is what Jesus says on his final night as a free man. Verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He tells them to take the bread and wine and remember what he is about to do, that on the other side of death, on the other side of grief, on the other side of sin, there is hope, there is salvation, and there is forgiveness. What seems like the end of the story for Jesus is actually just the beginning. It is the moment, it is this moment It is because of Jesus, it is because of his sacrifice that we can have joy in the midst of sorrows, that we can actually, in times of mourning and grieving, we can worship and we can dance and we can laugh. It is in this moment, as Jesus speaks, in his kindness, he lifts our head. Jesus goes to the cross, suffers the penalty in our place, And his disciples grieved the loss of their rabbi. They thought all hope was lost. Have you ever been there? You think all hope was lost. They think their days are numbered. They think the adventure is over for them. But it was just getting started because Jesus did not stay in that grave. But he rose again three days later, conquering sin and conquering death. And he rose from the grave, giving us now as followers of Jesus new life. He rose from the grave, which now gives us hope. And we know on the other side of grief is hope. What seemed like the end for good was just the end of a chapter. And Jesus then goes on to write a new chapter for his disciples, commissioning them to go out and change the world. On the cross, Jesus conquered sin and death. And this gives us hope, granting to us, those who repent of our sins and follow Jesus, the inheritance that our Father has promised to us in heaven. So that's what we celebrate When we celebrate communion together, as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, the great lengths he was willing to go so that we could know him, but we also celebrate that on the other side of death is life. Come on, somebody. And on the other side of of grief and pain and hurt, there is hope. That sin does not, sin and grief do not get to write your story. So our worship team is, they're going to come back up here. And they're going to play us a new song this morning, and it's, it's one that, that many of you may not know, perhaps some of you do. It's called Communion. So during this last song, if you want, you can stand up, you can sing along, you can worship, you can follow along with our worship team. But if not, if you want to just use this time to sit there and pray. Perhaps you've got some some anxiety, you've got some worries, you've got some troubles that you have hitched to yourself. So during this last song, I encourage you, before we take communion, I encourage you to to cast your cares upon the Lord. I encourage you to to cast your cares because He cares. I, I encourage you to pray and untie yourself. Untie yourself from the grief this morning and allow Jesus to lift your head. Because you can have hope and you can look forward to the promised inheritance that our Father in heaven has promised to us of eternal life. So our worship team is going to lead us and then I will be up in a few moments to lead us in communion.